So number 31, we've been asked to mark that, and not only are we happy to do that, but isn't it delightful to consider the wording of the songs we've sung today? Faith is the victory. That's the first thing we led as far as our worship service this morning. And do all things in the name of the Lord. And then hand in hand, we walk each day. Those are all beautiful sentiments, and I hope they prepare us to at least for a moment reflect on the authority of Christ. Let me at least say as we enter into that study, please don't forget, ladies, about the ladies' Bible class that meets day after tomorrow, Tuesday on the 30th of October at 6 o'clock here at the building, uh, an opportunity to continue studying about the subject of authority, and that'll be, in many ways, the heart and core of our lesson this morning, the authority of Christ. May I say on this opening slide, that last month when you had that first meeting, ladies, and all of us were blessed to consider a lesson discussing Psalm 24, wherein we gave thought to not only the matter of ownership, God made us and therefore He owns us, but also if we're Christians, He bought us, Jesus did at the cross. And therefore, from two perspectives, we are owned by one far greater than we May I say that this second month's study, and the one that really we'll focus on this morning, is a study that highlights specifically the authority of Christ. We're going to use primarily the book of Hebrews this morning in order to do that. I'd invite you to turn to that book, and throughout its 13 chapters, we'll notice several things that'll be very encouraging, very helpful, and in some cases very profound in light of the authority that Jesus possesses and what that means for you and me. As we begin that, let me say that I thought we would basically use the first few moments of the lesson to bring to our appreciation the setting of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a rather unique book. There's really nothing specifically like it in the Old Testament, and it stands rather powerfully alone in the New Testament for reasons that we're now about to see. Thirteen chapters... 303 verses. And as you reflect on the nature of the movement, the development through that, Jesus is center stage all throughout it. The nature of who He is, what He has done, and what He yet ongoingly does for you and me every day. Specifically, you'll notice on that slide, rather unusual in that, we are not sure who wrote the book. There seems to be a strong hint within it. Maybe it was the Apostle Paul, but he didn't sign it. So we cannot say for sure who wrote it. Not only that, it's not even known where it was written. There is a clue in chapter 13. You'll notice that Italy is mentioned. Maybe it was written from Italy. Again, we do not know. It is to that point I would ask you to note this. It seems clear it was written prior to A.D. 70 because the destruction of Jerusalem was after the writing of this book. But that leads me to make one more statement. Although there are several things about the book that we do not know, there is one thing that seems crystal clear. The purpose of the book. Why was it written? Would you please, at least in your mind's eye, appreciate the following? Picture yourself as a Jew... You had grown up a Jew, your parents were Jews, you had known about the temple, the tabernacle, and the aspects of Old Testament worship beneath the law of Moses. But the time came when you heard about a man named Jesus. 
maybe an apostle or some other faithful person preached the gospel and you obeyed it. You now are a Christian. You're not a Jew in the sense that you you cling to that Judaistic system. But you and I know this for sure, that these Jews who now had become Christians, there was a great deal of persecution they faced. Remember, the Roman government persecuted Christians on occasion and in fact even put them to death. Well, it's easy to imagine then that this person who had grown up a Jew but who was now a Christian, that person could say, when I was a Jew, I was never persecuted like this. When I was a Jew, I never was threatened in my life. And now suddenly that I'm a follower of Christ, I have to face this persecution. I tell you what I think I might do. I'm going to go back to being a Jew. I'm going to leave behind this gospel system and go back to the old law of Moses. The book of Hebrews was written to people in that situation, urging them, don't you make that mistake. Don't you leave Jesus behind to go back to the law of Moses. Because what Christ offers is better. What Christ offers is better. No wonder then on that particular slide, the temptation I've asked you to consider. These individuals underneath the t- character of that, that temptation, that persecution, they were tempted to leave the law of Christ. Tempted to leave the nature of the gospel and go back to another system. For that reason, may I say that the book of Hebrews has a number of profound considerations related to it. It has been called the gem of the Bible. G-E-M, the gem of the Bible. To understand Hebrews, you have to be a pretty thorough student of the Old Testament because it quotes from it and uses so much of it in its argument. But by the same token, it is a platform upon which the New Testament is based. And therefore, you have to have a pretty thorough understanding of the Old Testament and a good working knowledge of the New in order to at least extract all that you could from the book of Hebrews. Again, the gem of the Bible. Maybe one last thought on that slide. In studying Hebrews, it affords us the opportunity to deepen our understanding of both Old and New Testament. Because again, we have to appreciate all of that to gain the messages intended in this book. But let's add to that one more set of ideas. The key ideas, the key thoughts, the key considerations, I would suggest we can build up in the following way. At the top, the central idea in the book is Jesus Christ and the superiority that goes with Him. He is better. His law is better. His promises are better. His covenant is better. Everything about Christ is better than anything that the law of Moses ever offered or quite frankly that any other system could ever offer. Jesus is better. You'll note then in that light, I've used the word superiority. I like that word. Everything about Christ is superior in contrast to any other system including the law of Moses. That superiority leads me to note this. Keep in mind then that a person who was a Jew, that person knew about the old priestly system like Aaron and like those priests of the Old Testament. And so there will be a set of five chapters in Hebrews 
that will contrast that old Levitical Aaronic system with the priesthood of Jesus. Now, that's the deepest part of the book, I confess, but how profound it is, showing us how much better our high priest is than theirs was, and how much better the blessings due to our high priest are than theirs was. Are you getting the picture? The book of Hebrews is an encouragement to these individuals. Don't you leave Christ, because everything about Him, including His high priesthood, is better than anything the law of Moses ever offered. Let me pause at this point to say this. We today live 2,000 years roughly this side of the events of the first century, and yet mankind still has nothing better. Didn't Jesus say in this very book, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Hebrews 13, 8. There is still nothing better to which you and I can ever turn. How clear must be our devotion. How central must be our approach to Jesus Christ. And so, let's use then the remainder of our time today, highlighting the way in which He's better and that His testament is better. You'll note about the middle of the slide, the word better is the key word in the book of Hebrews. Sixteen times in thirteen chapters that word occurs. And the Greek word, you'll notice, is the word kriton. It means better. Isn't it true that you and I often enjoy things that are better? We look for what's better. Quite often, isn't it true that when a particular manufacturer comes up with something, they'll advertise it as new and improved, as if it's better. May you and I never forget, the old Jerusalem gospel is as good as it gets. There will never be anything better. We can never improve on the Christ, we can never improve on His gospel, and we can never improve on the church that He built. And the book of Hebrews will set all of that before us. And so it is, you'll notice, that this book begins by setting out the premise that Jesus is superior. If I were to ask a question, so what things might these Jews have had in their mind that they would have thought would be as good as Christ? Maybe someone would say, well, what about angels? Aren't angels greater than Christ? Maybe someone else would say, well, what about Moses? He was that great lawgiver of the Old Testament. Was he greater than Christ? Someone else might say, what about Joshua? He led the children of Israel into the land of promise. Wasn't he greater than Christ? It's at this point I'd like to interject something. The Hebrew writer takes those very ideas and builds some strong arguments against them. Let me conclude that slide like this. We're going to look in just a moment at all those possibilities. But I'd like to interject one thing at the outset just so that none of us are confused. Remember, these Jews were under the illusion that I can leave Jesus and go back to the law of Moses. I wasn't persecuted underneath that law. But you'll note near the bottom, and I've tried to put an exclamation mark here. One of the arguments that the Hebrew writer is going to make is, no, you can't go back to the law of Moses because that law is not even still there for you to go back to. That law's gone. 
you and I know it was nailed to the cross. And one of the other letters that you ladies will discuss Tuesday night is the book of Colossians. And in Colossians 2.14, that law was nailed to the cross. You can't go back to it even if you want to. It is no longer a possibility. That law is gone. Keeping those kinds of ideas in mind, those are things this Hebrew writer is going to emphasize. And with that as a set of preparations, one last thing. The greatness of Jesus, this book will highlight His position as Savior, His position as High Priest, His position as the Great Apostle, and His position as the one and only sacrifice for sins. As Jesus is presented in those ways, let's now begin in chapter number 1 and just step through a few observations about the superiority of Christ. We'll do that again by being somewhat selective. We won't look in by any means at all that's in these chapters, but I believe these thoughts will make the point plain. The book begins. This is the opening declaration in the whole book of Hebrews. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers of the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Question, who speaks today? The Son does. The S-O-N does. And so you'll notice that the particular message of God to man today comes by way of Jesus. And so isn't it true that although... Jesus, in fact, didn't God speak in the Old Testament ways sometimes by prophets and sometimes by specific information? Today, it's only by the Son. Would you please appreciate instantly that those Jews who heard this, their attention would have been grabbed instantly by the fact that God speaks to us today through Jesus. He is the better means of communication. But you'll notice almost instantly... Chapter number 1 then launches into this discussion. Those angels I mentioned a moment ago. Jesus is superior to the angels. Let every one of us appreciate that truth. As great as the angels are, Jesus is greater still. Would you notice chapter 1, verse number 4? being so much better than the angels. And there it is explicitly stated, Jesus is better than they are. You and I could list a number of particulars. Angels are not divine. They're not eternal like Jesus is. Angels, you see, do not have the other attributes of deity that Jesus does. In fact, notice verse number 5, For unto which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son, the point is, that was never said to any angel. It was said to the Son, however, Jesus. The greatness of Jesus. Isn't it true that you and I are often amazed at power? You know, there are individuals in this world who are kings of countries, and there are great positions of leadership. You and I should be impressed and amazed at the superiority of Jesus. He is greater than any angel. Let's add to that the following. Because of His greatness, chapter 2 begins then with this powerful question. 
Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken, notice it with me, by the Lord? Who has spoken then the word of salvation? The text says the Lord has. Jesus has. And notice if you and I neglect it, if we overlook it, if we fail to appreciate and apply it, how shall we escape if we neglect that salvation? I hope you and I never have a heart that becomes so seared that that question doesn't shake us up. If I neglect the salvation offered by the Christ, whose fault is it? I'm the one that's neglected it. I'm the one that's in fact turned a blind eye to it. And the question is still profound. No one will be able to save me if I choose to neglect it. It is with that in mind, look then at what else the Christ then has done for us. Lifting Him so highly, and you'll notice on the slide, verse number 9, speaking of Him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. What has he done? He's died for every one of us. This one that's so great, nonetheless humbled himself and went to a cross. He died for you and for me. He tasted death for every one of us. May I stop at this point again? Put yourself in the position of those Jews. Did Moses die for you? Did Joshua die for you? Did David die for you? Obviously that answer is no, but Jesus did. Why would you want to leave the only one who died for you and go back to these others who never did? Wouldn't that be a good question? Today might I invite us at least in principle to consider the same. Why would you and I leave Christ to go to serve the world? I know the devil and the world brings its greediness and its covetousness before us, and he wants us to leave Christ to serve the devil. You and I know from the principle of these verses and so many others, what a foolish decision that would be. May I ask, interjected in here's the lesson text that was read earlier today. Lester read for us from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, and as it speaks of Christ, let me invite you to emphasize it with me. Thou hast been put, or thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That's referring to Jesus. For in that he hath put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. How great is Christ? All things are subject to him. With that in mind. We have now already learned about His superiority over the angels. Let's close chapter 2, though, with the observation you noticed on the middle of that slide. Verses 15 and following. Let me call your attention specifically to verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Look at what Jesus has done for us. He has destroyed the devil. It wasn't Moses. 
It wasn't Joshua. wasn't Solomon or David. They didn't destroy the power of the devil, but Jesus did. Why would you leave the only one who has overwhelmed and overcome the devil for you? Obviously, those Jewish Christians, as they began to contemplate the letter of this book, I have no doubt that they rethought their desire, and many of them no doubt clung closely to Jesus because they were reminded what He had done for them. Chapter number 3. I mentioned several times in the lesson Moses. Every Jew would no doubt elevate Moses to an incredibly high place, and so he was that great lawgiver of the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. But Jesus is better yet. Let's use chapter 3 to highlight that truth. I would ask you to notice, particularly verses 5 and 6. I'll begin reading in verse 4. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house. Did you catch the appreciation? Moses was a servant in the house. Christ owns the house. Who's the greater, the one who is a servant in the house or the one who owns the house? And you and I know the owner of the house is greater and Christ owns the house. Can't you and I see the point? Jesus is greater. And by the way, did you notice who's, who the house is? Verse 6, whose house are we? You and I are the house. Christians are that house. It's the church of our Lord. May we never lose sight of how great the church is. It is with that in mind, you might now note the following. As great as Moses was, Christ greater still. Let's think about Joshua. There's no question Joshua was the unsung hero of the Old Testament. He was the successor to Moses. He led the people across that Jordan River into the land of Canaan into a time of prosperity, victory, and peace. Question, was he greater than Jesus? Hebrews chapter 4 overwhelmingly presents the answer. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Let me, in fact, develop it like this. I said a moment ago that Joshua led the people into this land of prosperity and this time of victory. How long did they keep it? You and I know, though they entered that land of promise, that land of Canaan, after a little while they became unfaithful, they were cast out of the land. They were overwhelmed and defeated. Sounds to me like that land of promise then wasn't the land they had hoped it would be for as long as they hoped it would be. But let's think about Jesus. Does He lead people to a land of promise? Does He lead people to a land of enjoyment and victory? We know He does. All of us as Christians know He does. He has led us out of the world of sin into a place of relationship with God. How long does that last? Last for all eternity. And that's going to be the point of Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath rest that they enjoyed in the land of Israel was not the promised land of rest because they weren't there permanently. Joshua didn't lead them to that land. But Jesus does. He's greater than Joshua. 
He leads you and me to a land of enjoyment, bliss, and peace, not just for a few years. We enjoy that relationship with God while on earth, but He leads us to heaven, that place to which we'll never leave once we're there. It's permanent. Jesus is greater than Joshua. As chapter number 4 develops that, it closes with these observations. And the last few verses of chapter 4 highlights that great truth. I'd like to invite you to notice the several things that it says. Beginning in verse number 12, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Because in verse number 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, who has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, At that point, you'll notice Jesus is the centerpiece. He knows everything about us. Verse number 13. He is the great high priest, verse 14. And His Word, verse 12, is that Word that is the absolute truth of God. With all those points highlighted, we've already learned so much, and yet we're only up to chapter 5. As we turn the page into chapter 5, I would ask you to note this. And if you like to make notes or division points in your consideration, chapters 5 through 10, six chapters, will highlight the priesthood of Jesus. And it'll do it in sometimes very profound ways. Let's at least, though, begin it like this. The priesthood of Jesus, beginning in verse number 5, or chapter number 5, Verse 6 reads like this, As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And right there we have mention of this Old Testament character from Genesis 14. A man named Melchizedek, and he will be frequently mentioned from this chapter on to chapter 10. In fact, the most frequently quoted verse in all the Old Testament is Psalm 110 verse 4. It mentions the priesthood of Melchizedek, and it's the verse quoted on this occasion. Jesus' priesthood is likened, at least in principle, to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now at this point, maybe your approach and mine is just like those Jewish Christians. What was so great about Melchizedek? After all, wasn't Aaron great? Wasn't the other priests of the Levitical order great? May I say, that's the deepest single argument, in my opinion, in all of the New Testament. What is so great about the priesthood of Melchizedek that it serves as a type of the priesthood of Jesus? The Hebrew letter will develop that point. As you and I do that, may I say, verses 8 and 9 starts a discussion of chapter 5. Though he were a son, that's Jesus, learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect. Let's stop and ask this. Was Moses perfect? Was Joshua perfect? Were the priests of the Old Testament perfect? Jesus is. Why would you leave Christ to go back to any other system when they don't offer perfection? 
may I say today, aren't you and I blessed to enjoy the perfection, the completeness, that's what that word means, available in Jesus. And so it is as chapter 6 then begins. You may notice verses 1 and 2 make this emphasis. Go on to perfection. Jesus has a doctrine. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, that doctrine is of Christ. One more time, can't we see the point? These Hebrew Christians were admonished, don't you leave the doctrine of Christ because that doctrine has within it the idea, the truth of salvation. For that reason, I've asked you to notice, Jesus is our forerunner, chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. A forerunner is one who runs before. He blazes the trail. He leads the path. In the Old Testament, you see, those prophets and priests, they weren't the forerunner. Aren't you thankful to have Christ who is? One way in which you and I each can think about that is this. Right now, Jesus is in heaven. And we're admonished to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And so if we follow Him, we'll end up where He's at. Isn't that what we all want? He's our forerunner. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. With those ideas stated, we turn to the next one and notice yet another consideration of that argument of the priesthood of Jesus. I've mentioned a couple of times, the Old Testament high priest was a very significant man. We each would remember that. Only that man could enter the most holy place of the tabernacle. He could only do that once a year. Didn't that make that man so special? Only he could carry blood into that place. Only he could go where that Ark of the Covenant was. Only he could be there at the mercy seat of God. And yet, Jesus' priesthood is shown to be better than the priests of the Old Testament order. Shown to be better than Levi. Shown to be better than Aaron. Shown to be better than any of the days of the law of Moses. I've tried to be very brief in the way I presented that. But could I call to your attention chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Wherefore He, that's Jesus, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's the kind of high priest you and I have. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That wasn't true of the old priests of the Old Testament order. That wasn't true of Aaron. That wasn't true of his sons. This high priest that we have, you and I could develop a sermon based on every one of those points. What does it mean to say that he is undefiled? Do you remember this point with me? In the Old Testament, the priest had to first go in and offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Hebrew writer says Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he didn't have any. His offering was exclusively for everybody else.
Doesn't that just touch you? To hear this writer make that comparison and use that as a basis of point. And as he uses it, he develops it as chapter number 8 starts like this. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He is summarizing for us. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. At this point, let's now note verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8. But now hath he obtained, that he is Jesus, a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of, watch our word, a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. To put it in plain English, isn't it like this? If that first covenant, if the old law of Moses had been perfect, there would have never been a reason to bring into place another law. You can't improve on perfection. And the Hebrew writer says, because there's now another law in place, that old law of Moses was not perfect. It wasn't complete in every regard. And so in chapter 8, verse number 13, we notice this rather interesting summary statement. Chapter 8, verse 13. And that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That point would not have been missed by those Hebrew people. I can't go back to the old law because it's old and decayed. It isn't even there anymore. Today, may I again say, there's nothing else for you and I to go back to. And so chapter 9 now comes before us. Now the author mentions the tabernacle, that old tabernacle. And he asserts that what Jesus offers in the church is better than anything that tabernacle had to offer. Notice, for instance, verse number 11 of chapter 9. But Christ, being coming, being coming high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Notice, His is more perfect. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, the old law could never accomplish that, but the law of Christ can and does. For that reason, chapter 9 closes like this. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. And furthermore, verse 22, without the shedding of blood is no remission. Jesus shed His own blood. And therefore, verse 28, Christ was once offered. How many times? Once. Those Old Testament priests offered on a daily basis. And Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And then He sat down on the right hand of God. To this point, couldn't we then appreciate the authority of Jesus? Look at what all He's done and the place He occupies. 
Speaking of all of that, chapter 10, verses 1 and 4. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Those priests of the Old Testament order, they never were able to make the consciences of the people clean, because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It is with that consideration in mind. Verses 23 to 25 then urge you and I today to make application of this. Let us provoke one another to love and to good works. And may we never ever forsake the assembly. Verse 25. No wonder in light of that. If we do, verse 29, we are then subject to sore punishment. May you and I be wise. May we be understanding. May we appreciate that verse 31 is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As you and I close that chapter, we now come to chapter 11. Faith. Oh, how faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And that element in faith now is the platform upon which we appreciate the superiority of Jesus. That superiority is seen as we close chapter 11 in all these examples. Faith means we do what God says the way He says to do it for the reason He says to do it. It's summarized in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which has so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race set before us. Looking to who? Verse 2, Jesus. May you and I look to Him exclusively, always being dedicated to Him, simply wishing to do what He says. There may be times of chastisement, chapter 12, verse 9. Things won't always work smoothly and easily, but may we never forget that chastisement works for our good. Just like a father that chastens a child, so too you and I may be chastened by God. The Hebrew writer says, even when times get rough, look upon it with brightness and be thankful that you're chastened now rather than showing up at the day of judgment and figure out you had it wrong. And so chapter 12 ends in verse 29, God is a consuming fire. And only one chapter's left, chapter 13. As you and I close the book, as we close that chapter, a number of truths presented. Chapter 13, verse 4, the honor of marriage. Chapter 13, verse 8, the consistency of Christ. Chapter 13, verse 17, the authority of elders. Chapter 13, verse 15, what you and I do in song as we praise God through Jesus Christ. And finally, chapter 13, verse 20, He, that's Jesus, is the great shepherd of the sheep. May you and I appreciate that great shepherd of the sheep and follow Him with devotion, consistency, love, and determination. I hope we've been reminded, as I use this conclusion slide, of these things about Jesus. There is every reason to understand the authority that's in Him. He's Creator. He's greater than the angels. 
He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Levitical priests. His law is greater than the law of Moses. Aren't those good reasons? And so the lesson is yours this morning. I hope that as you and I have reflected on the book of Hebrews, we have been encouraged to cling to Jesus and never, ever let go. It could be that there's someone in this audience today who upon examination of your life, that's not so. Maybe you've never become a Christian. Don't you want to? Don't you see what you're missing? Don't you realize what you're forfeiting? Believe in Jesus, won't you? Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. If we could help you in that way today, it truly would be our joy. If you have become a Christian but no longer are faithful, that isn't the Lord's fault. It's yours. Won't you come back rushing to His side, confessing error, repenting of sin, and in so doing, as you make those acknowledgments, He's promised to forgive you. This book of Hebrews is a reminder those Hebrew Christians needed a lesson like this, and maybe you and I do too. If we could help you today in any way, we want to do that and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.